Boom. <clears throat> Sports camp. All right, that gives you some idea of uh, how hype it has been here all week, all right? So it's been an amazing week, and those of you who were able to participate and come and serve or bring your kids, uh, what an amazing time. I had over 100 kids join us this week throughout the week for camp at various times, and uh, it's been an amazing opportunity to serve our community and to serve the church and just to everybody come together, uh, and most importantly, to raise up a generation of kids to know and love God and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, and the craziness of the world and how mean everybody is to one another, what a wonderful breath of fresh air uh, to have some kids who bear the fruits of the Spirit, amen? We can use a little more love and peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control in the world. And so uh, by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, uh, prayerfully, we'll be able to see those kids raised up to do that. So thank you to all who served. Uh, it was awesome. We had so many kids, but we had enough leaders and servant leaders to be able to take care of them. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun just to be able to do that well and to serve our community well. So I just want to say thank you to those who came out. Uh, if you're here today because you came at camp, welcome. I'm glad you decided to come join us for church. I uh, hope you hear the good news of Jesus and his love for you today. Uh, one of the things I was encouraged by uh, last week was uh, this happened a few times for a variety of different things. But remember when we started the church, even before we had a building, when we were in the high school, we would always talk about having a community-centered church. This was our dream to say we wanted to have a place where um, it, it would be like, hey, the, the Christians who meet, they just happen to meet here. But this is really a community place. This is a community building. This is for the city. Uh, and we worship here, absolutely. We pray here, absolutely. We do those things. We find them very important. But uh, to have a place that's real light in the community, that the community feels welcome in, that's just constantly busy with activity, like a community center, uh, all unto the name of Jesus, uh, and all filled with the presence of God as they are here. Well, <clears throat> on Wednesday, um, there was some confusion and a lot of uh, well, 10 minutes of uh, chaos because we had obviously 100 kids running around everywhere, okay? So they were on the fields, they were on the basketball courts, they were inside, they were everywhere, all right? Uh, and then we, had, we host an AA meeting here on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and so the AA meeting came in, uh, and they had to get, they had to have their room changed because of how much we were using the building. And so uh, they had to shift up to the top, to the youth room. Uh, and then also at the same time, our Ciudad Luz, which is the Spanish Bible study on Wednesday nights that meets from uh, seven to nine, uh, they were there and they were uh, serving the Lord and learning and growing in the word. And so they were trying to find where they were supposed to be. And uh, so we had a group meeting in Spanish to study the word, a group meeting in AA to recover from their addiction, and a bunch of kids running around all over the place being taught the Bible uh, and having fun playing sports. And there was one that was like one moment where I was like, okay, praise the Lord. This is what we came here to do. This is what we came here to do, is to really be a community-centered church. And from the small to big, from addictions to regular lifestyles, all these different things in Spanish and in English and in Lao right now, uh, we'll have people that meet today in Lao and Thai to hear the gospel, uh, to see the Lord bring that to pass in so many ways and to know this is only just the beginning. So my heart was very encouraged. Uh, we want this building to be just busy used. You know, I hate churches that sit there on Sunday, Monday through Friday with nothing going on. So uh, we wanted to really see the Lord do that. 
I think we have seen the Lord do that in many ways. So my heart was very encouraged on Wednesday with that particular thing going on. Uh, it's always good, you know, it's always good to have a little organized chaos, all right? All right, chaos means something's happening. And if you organize it just enough, everybody will be okay, all right? So uh, if it's too organized and it's too easy, then ain't not much happening. And if it's too chaotic, then it's too much is happening and it's not. So we're in the middle there a little bit to say, yeah, it's kind of crazy. This plate is really full. It's Spanish, English, AA, kids running, everything. Uh, but we organized and it was a, a beautiful picture. So I hope you are encouraged by what the Lord is doing here, and I hope you get that picture of what we wanted to be and what we hope to continue to grow into, uh, knowing by the grace of God, this is only a seed form of what God is really planning to do. Uh, and my prayer has always been that the greater work comes when we're all gone and we've planted some seeds that really grow into something amazing a uh, long, long time from now. So uh, may the Lord continue to do that here. Uh, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, I, just as an FYI, we do have Father's Day books out there in the lobby. I promised you last week, okay, remember, the devil came in and he stole your books, all right? We don't know what happened to them, but I'm sure he had something to do with it. So now uh, there's Father's books out there. My favorite book on being a father, at least currently, that can always change, but it's out there in the lobby. So if you're a dad and you weren't able to get it last week because we didn't have hardly any copies, please grab that on your way out. Uh, we honor you. We hope this book helps you uh, be the kind of dad God wants you to be. All right, today we're continuing our series through First and Second Thessalonians, uh, the series that we've been doing for months now called More and More. Today's title is called A Dangerous Deception, A Dangerous Deception. This is going to be very, very important, and I have, I have uh, there's a lot to say and I'm trying to whittle it down. But the more I studied this, the more I realized how insightful it is for our time and how helpful it's going to be to you and to me if we think it through well. A dangerous deception. Uh, the subtitle of this, which I think is very important for today, is this. It's to be careful what you love because it might be what kills you. Be careful what you love because that might be what kills you. It's just like um, the people, and uh, you know, if you're here today, all grace on you. The people who have dangerous pets in their houses, you know, it's like, I had a tiger in my house. The guy got eaten by a tiger. Well, how'd that happen? Well, the tiger was his pet, you know? It's like, that probably wasn't a good decision. That probably, what happened? The guy got eaten by an anaconda. What, was he in the jungle? No, he had an anaconda in his bedroom, you know? It's like, okay, that's, that's, he kind of got what it's coming from. I don't really feel bad. Uh, you know, these are the kinds of things when you think through it that way to say, People who love dangerous pets in their house, and then they pay the consequence of having a dangerous pet in their house. There's a lot of crazy stories on Google about this. I decided not to reference a particular one, but they're, they're out there, okay? They're out there. Uh, people getting killed by the pets that they love. Uh, and I want you to have in mind, that obviously is a, a ridiculous type of picture, but to have that in mind in regards to the things that you love, and today it's almost like the Bible is going to show you there might be a tiger in your house. There might be one in your heart. There might be something that you love that is actually the very thing that's going to be the end of you. That is why it is a dangerous deception. And the thing about being deceived is you don't know you're being deceived. That's the point. You get in here and you're like, oh, I'm fine. I believe all the right things. How do you know that? Nobody has deceived me. Nobody. I'm too smart for that. You know, I've been to school twice. I have two degrees, you know can't deceive me. Well, you're probably deceived in that very moment, you know? So uh, this is what the Bible's going to do. And I want to help, 
I want to I open your heart a little bit this morning. And those of you who come here all the time, uh, I want you to be hyper vigilant this morning to listen and to not go through some routine. But also those of you who are here maybe for the first time or you're kind of seeking Christianity out, I, I want you to give me 30 minutes to be open to the fact that you might not know what you're supposed to know and you might currently be deceived into how you are living. Just give me, th- just be open to that concept, all right, that you are and I am possibly deceived and you wouldn't know it if you were, which is why you need to listen to what God has to say and hopefully he will clarify and open our eyes to the realities of what's going on in our life. So there's a sense, even as I was preparing this, like I, I, I believe this all the time about every message because it's the word of God, but this just felt especially like you need to be on the edge of your seat, you need to listen because the Bible's going to use some really kind of big theological things happening to clarify something in your heart and to maybe open up a new realm for you to help you realize the ways in which you are currently being deceived because you need to be careful what you love, because it might be what kills you. So in light of that, open your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read from the Word of God. We're going to do all 17 verses, but we're going to start at the end and work our way kind of back and then up, right? It's going to make sense, I promise, all right? So, but we're going to start at verse 13, and then we'll go swing back to the beginning of chapter 2 in a minute. So verse 13 says this, uh, through 17. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. All right, so we're starting at the end before we get to uh, the kind of the meat of the passage here because I want you to have God's intention and God's goals in mind as you listen to the rest of what's going on. So as, as, we, as we get into kind of the meat of how you might be being deceived, it is God's intention and God's heart to fill you with eternal comfort and to give you good hope through his grace. It is God's heart and intention to establish you in every good work and word. It is God's heart and intention to call you through the gospel, save you, and help you stand firm. It is God's good intention towards you to give you comfort, hope, and salvation. This is the goal that God has in mind for your life. So as you're learning about ways in which you might be deceived or as you're learning about what God says about the future and all these different things, as you're learning these things, you have to keep God's goals and God's intentions in mind. You know, one of the reasons that you, especially those of you who are in Christ, still struggle with areas of sin and I struggle with areas of sin is because we still don't trust God's intentions. That's it. We don't believe that he actually has good for us, and we don't run from the good that we think is good for us, and we don't trust him. And so we step into places of sin because we don't trust God's intentions. Because if I actually believed God's intentions were always good to me at every point in my life, and his intentions were to fill me with good things, then I wouldn't sin. The reason why I struggle with sin is because I struggle to believe that as much as I should. And so maturity as a Christian is to grow in your trust, to say, I actually believe 
more and more every day, and I practically believe it in my life, that God's intentions for me are good, and that his rules and his way of life for me is good, and that his way of thinking and how I should live my life is good. And when he says to flee from something, he means it for my best interest. And when he says to go do something, he means it for my best interest. And the more I actually believe God has good intentions for me every second of the day, the more I'm going to be able to be obedient. So what we see from here, and that's why I wanted to start with God's intentions for you is to fill you with eternal comfort, eternal comfort. His intention for you is that you would eternally be comforted. That's a good intention. His intention for you is that you would have good hope. His intention for you is to establish your hearts. His intention for you is to use your life to establish every work that you do. His intentions for you is to save you by belief in the gospel. His intentions for you is to help you to stand firm in the midst of trouble. His intentions for you is to love you unconditionally forever. These are God's intentions and heart towards you. And you have to receive all of the instruction of the Bible with God's intention in mind. And once again, the reason why you struggle sometimes to obey or to even receive certain commands and believe them is because on the backside or at the root of it, you're not really believing that God's intentions through that command are good for you. And so it's not the command itself that bothers you, ultimately. It's the God behind the command. And the more you trust him, the more the command you'll trust. So this is why I start here. I want you to believe God's intentions for you are good. It says here, this is important for us, right, that we are saved here, verse 14, through the gospel and the sanctification of the Spirit. This happens, verse 16, by the Lord Jesus Christ from God our Father. So God the Father saves people through the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And he saves people through Jesus. And he does not save people any other way. And so as we discuss these things in your life and the ways you might be being deceived, they're all related to trying to pull you away from Jesus because Jesus is the only way in which you'll be saved. Jesus is the only hope that you have for your life. Jesus is the only hope for any human being. The only person that gets saved is the one that gets saved through Jesus, not through religious practice, not through good works, not through being a nice person, not through going to church, not through giving your money to the poor, not through being of any other religious type of tradition, not through following some prophet or doing anything else you could possibly conceive of in your entire life. The only way that God the Father saves sinners is by the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's it. And so now as you receive the rest of this truth, you need to do so unto this reality that is supposed to bring you closer to Jesus or help you maybe for the first time be more aware of Jesus. And the greatest deception that is happening in the world is convincing people that they don't need Jesus. That is the greatest deception in all the world. And for many of you, by God's grace, he has revealed himself to you. You are no longer under that deception, and now you are fighting a fight of faith, but you do know Jesus. But some of you this morning, that is the way in which you are deceived, as the devil has convinced you, and he's done so in a way that's not obvious to you, but he's whispered in your ear every day for your whole life, and he's convinced you you don't need Jesus. And today I want to help you see that you do. So these are the realities. This is what God's heart, this is what Paul's heart is for them. Uh, in light of what, what's going on. So essential here, look at the verse 13. It says, through sanctification, by belief in the truth. Okay, so this is what we're gonna start to get at. This is where he, he closes this chapter and this word truth is so important to the rest of the passage. It is the truth that they have that allows them, verse 15, to stand firm in the midst of trouble. 
So Paul's concern is that they would not be deceived, that they would hold on to the truth because it is the truth that is going to allow them to stand firm. And as they believe the lie, they will become shaken and unsettled and unstable. And it is the truth that allows them to stand firm. And so now Paul's encouraging them, he's teaching them, this is why we always need to be in the Word of God, always be listening to the Bible being taught faithfully, always encouraging one another with the Word, because we always need to every day practice holding on to the truth, because it is the truth that is going to allow us to stand firm in the midst of trouble. And so this is what Paul is attempting to do, is to teach them the truth so they can hold on to it. Now, here's a question I would have for many of you is just simply this. Do you have a truth that is worth holding on to in your trouble? Have you considered this? Do you have a truth that is worth holding on to, or is the truth that you hold something you would readily dismiss if it didn't work out for your life? And if that's the case for you, and you would move from one worldview or one idea of life or one hold the truth that you hold on to to another simply because of the change of your circumstances, I would submit to you today that you don't believe anything called truth at all. Because if it's true, it's true regardless of how your life is going in accordance with it. And some of you find yourself in trouble when you're in trouble because you weren't holding on to truth before you got into trouble. And the question I have for some of you, those of you who are going to be seeking in Jesus today and trying to figure Christianity out, is do you have a truth that is worth holding on to in trouble? This is what God offers you in the gospel is a truth that is worth holding on to even when your life falls apart. And to my brothers and sisters in Jesus, are you holding on to the truth? And are you ready for those times of trouble? Do you have a truth worth holding on to while you're in a time of trouble? So, Okay, that's God's intention for us. Now, reverse, we're going to go back to verse 1, and things are about to get complicated, so just hold on with me, all right? Okay, hold on. This is going to be great, all right? When things seem hard to understand, that's when the best stuff is there, right? You just got to really sit with it. Okay, so verse 1, let's look at this. Now, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. So once again, they're struggling with this. They've been struggling with this. First Thessalonians, Paul's been writing to them for a while now about the end times. He says, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you. There's something you're supposed to do to prevent yourself from being deceived. Let no one deceive you anyway. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we'll stop there real quick. We'll handle this. So Paul's writing to the church. Just remember, he's dealing with their anxiety over whether they've missed the day of the Lord. They are really unsettled because some teachers have come in and have said, yeah, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus has already come. You've missed out on it. Now you're in a time of trouble. And so they are really unsettled by this. He says, do not be alarmed or shaken in mind. So they're, they're significantly troubled by this. He already spent a portion of 1 Thessalonians in the letter writing to them about this. They're still troubled, so now he writes to them again about this very important topic. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. And as we're going to see later, verse 10, he warns them that the activity of Satan is a wicked deception. And so he's very careful with them to not be deceived. One of the things I think is important to notice here is that deceptions in believing the 
believing a lie, is the thing that leaves you alarmed, shaken, and unsettled. But when you believe and trust in the truth, your feet get on firm ground and you have assurance. What is the practical outworking of being deceived? Is that if you are deceived and living according to a lie, you will be unsettled, shaken in mind, and unstable. Because you don't have anything sure to hold on to, even if you don't know it. But if you are holding on to the truth, though you still struggle, and though this does not perfectly make every bad thing go away in your emotional state, it seems to be that the outworking of holding on to the truth is that a person becomes more sure, has more confidence, and rests with some assurance because the truth settles them. So how do I know if I'm being deceived? Well, and I'm not saying this is true 100% of the time for your life, you need some discernment. If you're shaken in mind, unsettled, continually anxious, maybe there's some lies that you're holding on to that are creating that in your life. Maybe. I think you should think about it and concern and to say, those who trust in the Lord, the Bible is so consistent with this, right, that those who trust in the Lord have assurance, settled. We still struggle, right? We still have our problems. We still go up and down. But there's a level of assurance that's available. Why? Because you're holding on to the truth. So how do I know if I'm holding on to the truth? At least at one level, I can assess my emotional and mental state of mind to say, am I holding on to the truth? Well, am I always shaken and unsettled and anxious? Now, there are many things going on in your life, and there are obviously chemical, medicinal, all these things going on. And so I want you to be very aware of your holistic body, spirit. So I'm not saying it's the only thing, but I do think it's something that you should consider. So Paul's trying to help them with their anxiety. The first concern is to bring some clarity. So he just teaches them, okay? So this is just theology 101 for Paul, really. For us, it's like 501. We never talk about this, but this is Paul's talking about this all the time. So the church is concerned they missed the day of the Lord. Paul basically responds by saying, it will be so obvious when he comes that you will be, un- you'll be sure. So it just it will be blatantly obvious. No one will be unsure whether Jesus has come back or not. He did this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says he's going to come like a thief in the night with an army of angels, okay? I don't think you'd miss that. I, you know, it'd be hard to miss that, okay? If Jesus with an army of angels coming like a thief in the night, that'd be hard to miss. I think you'd be pretty sure. And then he, he ups the ante and says, okay, just so you're clear, there's going to be a great rebellion and a man of lawlessness is going to arise and it's going to be so extreme that if you know the Bible at all in the Lord, you're going to say, that's him. It's not going to be confusing. This is his whole point. So he's just trying to make it clear theologically to them that they didn't miss the day of the Lord, that when Jesus comes back, the events that preceded are going to make it obvious and the event itself will be obvious. So just, you know, he's just trying to say, okay, listen, you really don't need to be worried about this. I promise you, you won't miss it, okay? It's impossible to miss. And so that's what he's talking about. Now, there are two now theological kind of realities about this end times that we need to discern. The first is the man of lawlessness, as it says here in verse 3 and 4. And then we're going to look into just a minute. Secondly is the mystery of lawlessness, which is the thing that should trouble you the most, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what the man of lawlessness is, just so you know. And then I'm going to teach you on the mystery of lawlessness because that's what's plaguing you right now. Okay? The mystery is your problem. All right? The man will be obvious when he comes. So let me give you just a few quick hits on the man of lawlessness. First, he calls him the son of destruction. 
the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Uh, you could also phrase that he is doomed to be destroyed. So the man of lawlessness is from the outset, no matter how much power he gets, doomed to destruction. And the reason for this is because he is lawless. And so I think what we see in the man of lawlessness teaches us about when we want to, to go against the law of God and be lawless people is this principle of life that is uh, emulated in this man and is something we must discern for ourselves is this, that lawlessness leads to lifelessness. The lawless, the leader of the lawless people is one doomed to destruction because of his lawlessness, because of his unwillingness to submit to the law of God, and because of his desire to rule his own life and to rule the world around him, those very things, his love of power and his love of freedom and his love of autonomy are the very things that destroy him. And may it not be so for us. Be careful what you love because it might be what kills you. Be careful that you love your freedom so much that you will not submit to the law of God because that might be what kills you. Be careful that you love power so much that you will not submit to the rule of God because that might be what kills you. Be careful that you love personal autonomy so much that you will not submit to God being the ruler over your body because that might be what kills you. The man of lawlessness is an extreme example of the outcome of our little men of lawlessness. The women of lawlessness, the men of lawlessness, the teenagers of lawlessness, the children of lawlessness. Be careful what we love because that might be what kills you. It is not God's law and his restriction of your life that harms you and that takes away your joy. This is the deception of the devil to convince you that the laws of God limit your happiness. You are deceived if you think following one single command of God will limit your joy and happiness and fulfillment in life. You have been lied to. Lawlessness, refusing to submit to the law of God, wanting to be your own person and to follow your own heart, that is the very thing that will kill you. It is lawlessness that leads to lifelessness. And you need to constantly battle the deception of the enemy to convince you that a lawless life is a free and exciting and happy and pleasurable life. The man of lawlessness is a man doomed to destruction. And we learn from his example that if we are men and women of lawlessness, we will also be doomed to destruction. This is important for us. So practically now, in terms of the man of lawlessness, a few things. It says he comes basically on the wind of a great rebellion. So there's a great rebellion, which is basically a great apostasy that people who once maybe proclaimed certain things about the faith or who acted like they believed in Christ have now fallen away. They have rejected the faith or that they've been taught. They have apostatized. They have rebelled against the teaching that they have received. This comes in a great mass of numbers all at the same time. There is at some point going to be a great rebellion, and it seems to be not just of people in the world, but of people who claim to be Christians. It doesn't mean they were. If they rebelled, it means they weren't. 
You can't leave the faith if you really have it. But to say there's this great kind of rebellion, it's almost even like now with, with COVID, that kind of, it, COVID kind of winnowed out people that loved being a, you know, Christianese but didn't actually love Jesus. And I think God's done a wonderful work to clarify to everyone their spiritual condition. To say, well, maybe you love church and you love community. Maybe you just love the status it gave you or you just love being supported, but you never actually loved Jesus. And so you've easily gone away from those things because you never loved them in the first place. And that's not necessarily true for everybody at the same time. I'm just saying it's a part of what's happening. And I think the Lord's already done that. And he's clarified, but this is going to come even more. It's going to be a great rebellion. So the, the man of lawlessness is going to arise out of this great rebellion. So the rebellion is the soil, and the man of lawlessness is the, the flower, that, that, well, not flower, right, whatever, the piranha plant that comes out, comes out of the, the soil of, of lawlessness. And so it's not just a man of lawlessness, it is a culture of lawlessness, and the culture of lawlessness in some part arises out of the church from people apostatizing the faith they once proclaimed to hold. This makes it blatantly obvious. 1 John 2 and 4 would uh, also call this man the Antichrist. So if you've heard of the Antichrist, the same thing, it's the same thing. So the man of lawlessness that represents kind of the end times is also known as the Antichrist, 1 John 2 and 4. This man is known most importantly here for exalting himself above all people and all religions. He self-deifies and he calls himself God, and he actively opposes all other objects of worship. And he does so with incredibly convincing false signs and wonders. So this will once again be blatantly obvious. This man, it seems, will arise to political rule, religious rule, and he will do so with very convincing signs and wonders. And so it will be blatantly obvious. He will oppose all other objects of worship, and he will claim himself to be God. This man will do all of these things blatantly out in public, and it will be obvious to all who follow Jesus that he is the fulfillment of what God had said would happen. I wanted to point out real quick the difference between this man and Jesus, and it's very important because this man proclaims to be God and says that no one should worship anyone else. He opposes all other objects of worship. But so does Jesus. Jesus opposes all other objects of worship, and he says that no one should worship anybody other than him. Now, what marks the difference? And this is, once again, what you're going to see in the man that's revealed in us, right? This is amazing, okay? Jesus, who has all power and authority and the right to say nobody should worship anybody else, actually comes down and lives in humility with us. And he dies on a cross to save us so that we could worship him. So Jesus has all authority to proclaim no other gods, nothing. You should worship me. But he doesn't exercise that authority in a prideful manner. He exercises humility. He takes on the form of a man, and then he goes all the way to the cross, and as an act of service to people, he dies on the cross so that we can be saved and so that we can worship him. 
Jesus creates the way to worship. He doesn't just demand it. He certainly demands it, but he doesn't only do that. And now you see this man who also rises to power, but he does so in arrogance, and he does so inconsiderate of people, and he does so not caring one bit about anybody other than himself. And so the mark of his rise to power is pride. But the mark of God's rise, the mark of God doing what he does is humility. The one who deserves to exercise pride chooses humility, and the one who should be humble chooses to be proud. This is the difference in their rises, so to speak. Even though the man of lawlessness rises, no rise at all. Obviously, he has no real power. I want you to notice how the mark of the man of lawlessness is pride and arrogance. And the mark of Jesus, and therefore his followers, ought to be humility. The difference between the man of lawlessness who does signs and wonders and the difference between Jesus, the son of God, who does signs and wonders is one does them to elevate his status and the other does them because he loves to heal people. So you bring it all the way back down to us and you say, how much of the man of lawlessness is evident in my own life and heart? The mark of the man of lawlessness is arrogance and pride. And the mark of Jesus, even though he has every right to rule with power and authority, which he does, he still chooses the mark of his life to be humility and service. This is the difference, the most dramatic difference between these two. This is how you spot it, and this is also how you spot a real Christ follower. And this is also what we choose to grow into as Jesus followers. May it not be so that the mark of Christians of our age or of this church is arrogance in what we believe or exercising of power and authority, but humility and service. Okay, so that's the man of lawlessness. Now, the thing you should be most concerned about, so that's something you need to know to be ready just in case it happens when you're alive. The second thing is the mystery of lawlessness, which the Bible says is already at work. So this is actually the problem of your life, All right, Let's do this. He says, verse five, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So remember once again, I can't emphasize this enough. He was in Thessalonica three weeks. And he said, I told you the man of lawlessness would come. Like, we never teach that in basic training, okay? Christianity, one hey, you need to be ready for the man of lawlessness. Okay, thank you for coming to City Light. Be ready for the man of lawlessness. You know, like, this is not how we normally do things, and we're learning. But Paul was really, really emphasizing this, all right? Do you not remember when I was with you, I told you things. And you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. So that's God, the Holy Spirit, the work of God restraining him so that he's revealed in the proper time. Don't you? I just love this. We're not going to preach a sermon on it, but it just reveals the sovereignty of God that even the man of lawlessness, right, is restrained. And he will only be released when God supposes it, when God wants it to happen. In God's timing, all these things will take place. God is always in control every second of every day. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness here is, is already at work. So the man of lawlessness, he's coming, be ready. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is your problem. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all false power, signs, and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are being perishing, Why? What are they deceived into? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And I want to stop for a second and remind all of you that it isn't your knowledge of the truth that saves you, but your love of it. 
Because you can quote the gospel doesn't mean you know the gospel. Because you've been coming to church all your life doesn't save you. It is not your refusal to learn the gospel. It is your refusal to love the gospel. The mark of a Christian is not knowledge but love. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So now they are being deceived. Their hearts are so hard, God now participates and judges them by continuing the delusion. So they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so here's where the rubber meets the road for all of us. This is how we are often being deceived. So I want you to first notice, verse 9, the, the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness are both empowered by the activity of Satan. So the devil is actively working these things out. He is currently going to arise a man to represent him fully, but he is actively at work in a mystery. Both the man and the mystery of lawlessness work together to bring a final deception to those who have rejected the gospel, to bring final condemnation and judgment on those who have already chosen to not love the truth. So here's why it's a dangerous deception. And here's why you need to listen and be aware of what's going on in your life. It's a dangerous deception because it's a deception that keeps in line with your loves. It's a deception that keeps in line with your loves. It says their ultimate condemnation was that they refused to love the truth. And they had pleasure or they loved unrighteousness. So when the deception comes in, it keeps in line with what you love, which is why it's so deceiving. It doesn't come in and present to you something you hate. It doesn't come in and present to you something unpleasant. It doesn't come in and present to you something obviously wrong. It is deceptive because it provokes love and pleasure. And it simply affirms and empowers your continued pursuit of loving the things of the world and finding pleasure in them. And it just does that continually, continually, continually until there's no chances left and it's over. And now you are condemned forever. How deceptive that is. It's a dangerous deception because it is in line with your loves. The mystery of lawlessness is the activity of Satan to convince you that following your heart is a good thing. That's the mystery of lawlessness, is to convince you that a lawless life is a good one. That's the activity of Satan. That's the secret of the world. That's the spirit of the age, is to convince you that a lawless life is a free one. A lawless life is a pleasurable one. A lawless life is a thrilling one. A lawless life is an adventurous one. A lawless life is a fulfilling one. A lawless life is a satisfying one. A lawless life is what you want and what you need. That's the mystery in the spirit of the age. And it's all phrased, I think, in our times with follow your heart. I think the greatest deception the devil has played on this generation is to teach us that we ought to follow our hearts. It's the mystery of lawlessness. 
The Bible says that your heart is naturally deceptive, Jeremiah 17. It's wicked. It's full of sin. It is to follow your heart is to go along with the man of lawlessness who is doomed to destruction. The reason why this mystery is so powerful is because it's the spirit of the age. The devil has been actively at work, and the world comes alongside of this to affirm the desires of your heart. Listen to me and write this down. The deception is often disguised as affirmation, while the truth was found in correction. Please, listen, please, write this down and think about it. The deception comes disguised and masked as affirmation. That is who you are. Live it out. That is what you should do. Yeah, go do it. You deserve that. Don't let anybody else tell you who you should be. The Bible is full of all these crazy things, you know? You'd be a bigot to believe those things. Be who you are. Be what you want to be. Follow your heart. Live your truth. The deception is disguised as affirmation, which is why I'm so concerned that many of you here or watching online are currently under a delusion and under a really bad deception that's going to lead to your destruction because the whole time you think it is affirmation. But the truth is actually found in correction. How do you know you're being deceived? Well, are you being constantly affirmed? Is anything correcting your life? Is there any point at which something comes along and says you ought not to live that way? Do you ever submit to the authority of anyone other than yourself? Do you allow anyone to tell you that your heart is not in a good place? That the direction of your life is not a good direction? Not even just Christianity, but anywhere. Do you let anybody correct you? The deception is disguised as affirmation, which is why you are deceived. But the truth is found in correction, which is why I want you to be loving the word of God and to feel good and to be excited when God corrects you. What a wonderful thing to be corrected because it means I can walk in the truth. Do you see what I'm saying? We hate being corrected because of our pride. But what marks the man of lawlessness? Pride. What leads to his downfall? The inability to be corrected. And now we sit and we say, well, nobody can tell me how to live my life. And then we sit with the Bible and we refuse to be corrected. When being corrected is the very thing that gives you life, you should love conviction. You should pray for more sorrow over your sin. You should ask God to reveal things in your life. You should love it when he points something out in your heart that you hate so much. It's a sign of God's love for you. The truth is found in correction, but deception is deceived and disguised as affirmation. And I'm telling you, if you take that sentence and you begin to be aware of what's going on around you, you're going to be a lot less likely to be deceived. It's a dangerous deception because it is in line with your loves. As we said, be careful what you love because it might be what kills you. 
It is a dangerous deception because it is in line with your pleasures. He says, though, who's those who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The mystery of lawlessness is to convince you that loving the world and loving pleasure in the world is the supreme form of existence. This is why the God of the world is sex, and nobody can imagine anybody telling you to have any control over that area of your life. How dare you limit my love and my relationships with people, and how dare you limit my pursuit of my own pleasure? You know it's a God when people will die for things like that. It's the danger and deception of the age. They love and find pleasure in unrighteousness. The mystery of lawlessness is to convince people that Psalm 1611 is not true. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And to convince you that what the world says is true, that, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Make the most of your life now. This is the deception. It's in line with your love, and it's in line with your pleasure. And therefore, it is deceiving you all the way to your death and destruction. Be careful what you love because it might be what kills you. Be careful what you delight in and find pleasure in because it might be what kills you. The mystery of lawlessness is actively at work. This is what I'm saying to you is the most dangerous thing in your life. The man of lawlessness is coming. Now, here's what I want you to finally see, a word of encouragement as we close. So verse 8 is a great part of this chapter, and it says this, okay? So after all of this and the activity of Satan and all these horrible things that are happening and the delusion and the deception and all these things which make everything seem so uncertain and unstable and scary, verse 8 solves all that in two seconds. It says, when the lawless one is revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to what? Nothing by the appearance of his coming. Here's what I want, you, I want, you to, I want us to close on. I want you to understand and to find confidence in the max force of evil, okay? This is the culmination. The man of lawlessness is the culmination of all the power of the devil. It is the full expression of all evil on the earth. It is every evil desire, every evil thing, every evil purpose maximized in the greatest power the earth has ever seen on the earth. And the Lord Jesus shows up and he handles it like this. <sighs> All the armies of evil are running with their swords and their arms and their shields and their fight and their power. The whole earth is amassed against him. And he shows up and he goes, and nothing. The max force of evil and the full expression of wickedness is no match for simply the breath of Jesus. This is your encouragement because Jesus not only has the power and he will prove to be the one who ultimately rules the day and the delusion and the deception and the evil will not have a final word. But the thing that Jesus did to overcome evil is not primarily this moment, but it's something that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. The way that Jesus planned to overcome evil was to simply not demolish it but to die for those who participated in it. Our concern is not just the evil around us, but the evil inside of us. 
what has to be dealt with isn't just the wickedness around us and the activity of Satan around us, but the wickedness within us and the activity with Satan within us. And so Jesus doesn't just show up and blow on all of us and disintegrate us into nothing, which he has every right to do and which he will ultimately do with those who do not follow him. But Jesus, in humility and love and service, conquered evil, not only around you, but within you by going to the cross and dying for you. This is the good news of the gospel, that the one who has power to demolish you and disintegrate you into nothing chose by an act of love to die for your sins. Jesus overcomes evil, not on a hill with an army, but on a cross with his blood. And the greatest deception in all the earth is to convince you to not believe that. And so I'm pleading with you today to be open and mindful of what's going on in your life and to prayerfully turn to Jesus for the salvation of your soul and for all of you to be careful what you love because it might be what kills you. But also be careful what you love because in Jesus it'll be what heals you. Let me pray and let's respond to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for the truth, how wonderful it is to have the truth. I just pray, Lord, I pray by the work of the Holy Spirit against the activity of Satan that you would help us all to be hyper-aware of the condition of our souls, to be aware of how we might be being deceived according to our loves and pleasures. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room who has refused to love the truth that today they would come to a realization that your love is better than life. I pray, Lord, that no one would walk out of this room without a relationship with you and that through faith in you, they would have new life. Would you do that today, Lord? For those in the room and those watching online, I pray just for a mature, stable, standing firm on the truth congregation. I pray for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that you would not let us be deceived, Lord, that we would hold firm to the truth, that we would be careful what we love, and that as you have told us, we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for your work on the cross to take care of all of the evil inside of us, Lord. Thank you that you have the victory and that we can have assurance that you will win the day. I pray, Lord, that you would do what you need to do by the work of your spirit in each heart now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond to the Lord.